I'm Pastor Barry. I'm the executive pastor here at New Life. And as always, I just want to say thank you for investing a portion of your weekend with us here, whether this is your first time or uh, you've been coming for many weeks, months, or years. Thanks for, for being here and thanks for uh, prioritizing this, this part of your, your weekend. Uh, if this is your first time, just know that we're, one, so thankful that you're here. You are our guest and we hope that you feel welcome here today. We've prepared for you. We've been praying for you. And it's our hope that God will speak to you as only he can as we worship together today. I have the opportunity today to continue on in our series, which is entitled Loving Our One. And over the past several weeks, we've kind of looked at loving our one from a, from a personal perspective. We've talked about how God loves us. That's the primary thing, and we're going to talk about that repeatedly today, how God first loved us. And then we talked about how we get to love God in return. And then last week, Erin gave a tremendous message on loving ourselves, right? And she did a great job of helping us understand that for some of us, we really do struggle with loving ourselves from time to time, and that's okay. And then for people like me who have no issue loving ourselves that there's a cautionary tale there as well. Um, she just did a tremendous job outlining the joys and challenges that we can have as we interact with who we are. And we reiterated again that the foundation to all of this is that God first loved us. Erin said this last week, and, and I wanted to repeat it again today. She said, God loved us first, despite knowing our flaws and failures, despite knowing how unlovable we can be at times, God loved us and still loves us. In fact, God loved us so much, he gave us his only son, the perfect one, who sacrificed himself for us, the imperfect ones. God loved us first. And we need to hold on to that today because today we're shifting our focus from really ourselves to our neighbors. Now, we're going to talk about what a biblical understanding of our neighbors ought to be, but just know this. We cannot love our neighbors in a biblical way unless we understand God's love for us, first and foremost, and also we're empowered by His Holy Spirit because, as we'll see today, it's outside of our earthly ability. It really, it really is to love our neighbors as God would have us love them. I'm going to say that so often today, it's actually our take-home point. It's the one point I'm going to seek to make throughout the message today, and it's this. We love others because God first loved us. That's the ability, the understanding, the motivation is all within that phrase. We love others because God first loved us. Now, when we talk about neighbors, if we think in a Western Pennsylvania, American sort of context where we all, most of us probably reside, when you think of neighbors, you think of folks that perhaps live in your neighborhood or live in your community, and there might be a sense in which we do care about Bob or Sharon that lives across the road. But to engage with those neighbors, again, we're going to look at that from a biblical context today, we'll quickly see that it exceeds our human understanding and abilities. One, because the understanding of a neighbor from a biblical context is much bigger than any of us would perhaps imagine. The Bible helps us understand who our neighbors are, and also, this is very important, how we extend the love of Jesus to them. So as we walk through this today, we're going to have an understanding of who are our neighbors, and then how do we extend the love of Jesus to them, because Jesus extended that love 
to us. Thankfully, in Scripture, there are times where God gives us very clear definitions of things, and neighbors just happens to be one of those. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, I'd invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. The words are also going to be up on the screen here in just a moment. But we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. But before we look at the scripture for today, let's pray. Lord God, I ask and pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would move in this place, that you would transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we take your word today, as we apply it to our lives. Open our our hearts, our spirits to receive all of who you are. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 10, 25 through 37 says this. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. If the first portion of this passage sounds familiar, it's because we have emphasized God loving us and our loving others repeatedly throughout this message series. We've talked about how God's love for us enables us to love Him, to love ourselves, and today to love others. We've said it again and again. It's a primary theme. Whether you've been in the message with us the past couple of weekends or if you're working your way through the 21 days of prayer and fasting, loving God, loving others. It's a primary theme. And the expert in the law knew this, right? He knew the Old Testament portion of the Bible better perhaps than any of us sitting here. And so he knew that Scripture as a whole pointed him to this. So when Jesus was asked this question, Jesus turned it on the expert knowing he would probably know the right answer, and the expert did. He referenced those passages in the Old Testament Scripture, and he answered correctly. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. We know this in the New Testament as the great commandment, and we have named it that because it appears in different contexts throughout all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In each Gospel, there is one time that an expert or someone in the crowd asks Jesus a question very similar to this. In this instance, obviously, the expert's trying to, to fool Jesus. He's trying to trick him. 
But Jesus turned the tables, asked the man, how, how do you know it? What does the law of Moses say? That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And the man knew the answer. He referenced Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we're going to read here in a moment, and also Leviticus chapter 18. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5, says this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord, our God is, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Now, when I was in college, we had a professor come into class one day and asked us, what is the most quoted passage of Scripture? And he told us that if we got the answer right, we could leave. Great. John 3.16, no. 23rd Psalm, no. He gave us like a half dozen chances. None of us got it. We felt like, whoa, who is this guy? We knew quickly it was a trick question, and he pointed us to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, because as he explained to us, the moment that Moses recorded these words, thousands of years beforehand, they became part of Jewish life. For the ancient Israelites, they would awake every day and they would recite that prayer. It's known as the Shema, which in Hebrew means to listen or to hear, and it's known as the Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And then it goes on from there, and teaching, you, teaching these things to your children, impressing them on them. And Jews, for thousands of years, every day, wake up and recite that passage, up to present day. We have several friends right now who are in Israel, and I guarantee you that if they went to the Wailing Wall, which I believe they are, but if they went, they would hear this prayer over and over and over and over again. The expert in the law knew that. He knew that. And you know who else knew it? Every three and four-year-old in the crowd that day. They knew that you loved the Lord your God. But he also referenced Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 which is an obscure passage which says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israel, Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So what does the expert in the law do here? Well, he shows us, one, that he knows the right answer. We know that he's a learned man, he's educated. He knows his Bible really well. And Jesus actually affirmed this. He said, that's great, go, do this and you will live. You know what the right answers are. Do it, and you will live. Jesus always, in the Gospels, he gets to the heart of the matter. And whereas he acknowledged that knowledge was important, he also said what's more important is that you put this knowledge and practice into some sort of action. It's one thing to know the right thing. It's another thing entirely to do it, right? And so he's saying, put it into practice. As we say often here at New Life, if you have information but you lack application, it's just information. We're smart. But if we have the information and we apply it, there's transformation that happens as a result, both in us and in our communities and with those whom we interact. Jesus said to this expert in the law, that's great. You know the right thing. Now you need to apply it. Now, we're at a point in our story where I think a few of us can relate. Have you ever been reflecting on something and gone, you know, should have stopped while I was ahead? Should have stopped while I was ahead. Because the expert in the law should have stopped right there. But the Bible tells us he wanted to justify himself, which whenever we start justifying ourselves, sometimes we're on thin ice. 
But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, the God of the universe, what turned out to be a very loaded question. He said, well, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, for us to understand what he was asking, we got to set some context here, both for the people of Israel, the Jews at that time, the crowd that Jesus would have been speaking with, but also we need to take a historical look at the people of Israel as a whole. What's interesting is this man, this expert in the law, clearly knows his Bible based on the answers that he gave, but it seems like he forgot to read the portions that talked about the neighbor. Now, he knew one of them. He he quoted Leviticus 19, right? And that said what? Well, you're supposed to love the people of Israel. Do them no harm, right? So at the very least, you're supposed to love the people of Israel, your fellow Jews. But if you read through the Old Testament, even the first five books, what, what becomes abundantly clear is that God chose the people of Israel to be his holy people, his called out and set apart ones, right? And he said to them, the reason that I'm doing this is so that when the other nations that surround you, your neighbors, look at you, they will see you worshiping me, the one true God, and they will go, wow, that's crazy. Why do they do this? And you will be my testimony to these nations so that they what? Accept me. Right? That was the goal of the people of Israel, to live a holy and called, set apart and called apart life so that the neighbors that surrounded them would come to know their one true God. We could say it like this. If those people, those Israelites, loved God, remember, we love God because he first loved us, if they would reflect that back to God, if they would love him as he loved them, then they would gift their neighbors with the knowledge of the one true God. It would ultimately change and transform their life. But there's a catch, right? The catch was in order to do that, they had to live holy and set apart lives. They had to not adopt the customs, the values of their neighbors. They had to not worship all the foreign gods that their neighbors did. They couldn't do those things. And if we read through the Old Testament, what happened? They couldn't do it. They didn't do it. Repeatedly, God says, listen, follow me. I'm, your, I'm the one true God. Follow me. And they go, no, we, we won't do that. We can't do that. So instead of becoming a light, right? They were supposed to be a light. Instead of becoming a light, they became what they were supposed to illuminate. Thus, the darkness just perpetuated. It spread. They weren't the light that God intended them to be. Their sins built, the Bible tells us, so much so that God allowed his people, his chosen people, to go into exile, where they remained for 70, 80, 90 years, and then they returned, although under bondage still, to their homeland, right? We read about this in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, where they rebuilt the temple, and we would think, but they got it right this time, right? Well, kind of, kind of. They still did some intermarriage and they still neglected the Sabbath and Nehemiah still had some pretty hard words for them along the way. And unfortunately, it's at this point that the biblical narrative for the Old Testament stops. It's just, it's done. And we enter what's known as the intertestamental period, which is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The people return from exile, they struggle through some things, then there's nothing for 400 years until... Jesus. And the New Testament kicks off. So what happened during those 400 years? Well, during those 400 years, 
uh, had an opportunity in college to really study this time. And what's interesting is from archaeological digs around this time, they noted that the number of like little deities and gods and little pagan things that people would, would worship, the number of those on the landscape in Palestine during that time in Israel declined significantly. And what they believe is, based on that and also some of the other historical records and writings we have, is that like the people got it. They got it. They understood that they had to begin to worship the one true gods. The one true God. They rejected the foreign gods of their neighbors, and they began to worship the one true God. And you're thinking, that's great, right? Well, kind of. Kind of. Like we said, they were called to be a set-apart light, right? They were called to be a set-apart light, so they got that. But unfortunately, instead of becoming the set-apart light, they became a set up, number of set-apart and divided factions. You can read about them in the New Testament. The groups are like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? Another group called the Essenes. And then there's the normal people. What did they do? They're all Jews. Do you know what they did? They fought each other tooth and nail all the time about really ridiculous things. So instead of like becoming a holy and set-apart people, they became a holy and set-apart angry mob where they just fought. And, like we couldn't draw any possible parallels to today. But, you know, just you know, use your imagination. We don't have to go too far. And they fought. Sure, they got rid of the foreign gods, but they, in, the, in the process, they got rid of their neighbors as well. So when the, when the expert in the law says, who's my neighbor, this is the context. Everybody is divided. People in that crowd are divided. And, he, and the man goes, well, who's my neighbor? To do what? Justify his actions. He probably had a very narrow view of who his neighbor might be. And so Jesus responds with what is one of his most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, this is a story. It didn't actually happen, but Jesus used it to illustrate a greater point. So the story begins with a guy, a Jew, walking from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho, which would not have been unusual. Folks would have used that route all the time. It was a primary route. And so <clears throat> folks would walk back and forth on it all the time. And as they went, especially as they came from Jericho to Jerusalem, they would have valuables with them. And because where valuables congregate, so do bandits. Bandits were on the road. In fact, it wouldn't be abnormal for you to hear of someone getting beat up on this road almost every day. It would be like us being surprised, like, really, you got stopped on construction on Route 28? What happened? <laughs> what? You, did, what? That never happens on, yeah, it happens all the time. Now, like orange cones and bandits, not the same thing, but again, wouldn't have been surprising. So the guy gets beat up, everybody in the crowd would have been like, yeah, okay, what else? What are, are you going to serve fish and bread here at any point? We know, let's go, let's move it on. So the guy's laying there half dead. And two people walk by, first a priest and then a temple assistant. We can also call him a Levite. So who are the priests and who are the temple assistants? Well, in the Old Testament, Aaron is the brother of Moses. And God said to Aaron, listen, Aaron, you and your descendants, you're going to be my priests. And it's going to be your role to care for my flock, to care for my people. You will offer sacrifice for sin and atonement. You will instruct people in the law. You will care for my people. Aaron was of the house of the tribe of Levi, right? He's one particular guy in the house, in the tribe of Levi. And God said, you Levites, 
All of you who are not of the line of Aaron and his sons, you will be their assistants. You help them out. You assist with sacrifice. You assist in caring for my people. And so, who walks by but two guys, it's in their job description to care for Jews. And they don't stop. The priest doesn't even go over. He just walks by. The temple assistant, the Levite, actually went, and then he walked by. Now, why they did this, we don't know. We can infer, but we don't ultimately know. What we do know is that if you were a, a priest or a Levite and you touched a dead body, you'd be deemed unclean. And what that meant was like you didn't lose a hand or anything. You just had to go and do some purification rituals and offer a sacrifice. It would be inconvenient, right? But here's the thing. We know from the story the guy's not dead. He's only, the Bible makes it very clear, half dead. And if the princess bride has taught us anything, <laughs> it's that you can do a lot when you're almost dead, right? But they didn't stop. They didn't notice I don't know what they had to do the day, that day. Perhaps they were busy, but they carried on. Now, for the crowd at that time, you're like, yeah, of course they didn't stop. That's part of the faction, right? So either you're part, in part of that crowd, you're either part of the group that went, well, why wouldn't that person stop? Or you're part of the crowd that's going, yeah, that makes sense. Those priests, they never stop. They don't really care about us. Because who's left? The normal people, Right? And what the crowd would have been expecting is that the normal Jewish guys walking down the road next, you know, like the salt of the earth, he probably roots for the Steelers, you know, that guy, they're going to rebuild. That guy, he's coming next. And Jesus says, what? And then a Samaritan, they would not have expected that. I don't have time to go into why the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other so much, but like all good feuds, this one is literally, I'm not even exaggerating, hundreds of years in the making. Hundreds of years they have hated each other. And do you know where the Samaritans are located? Right next to the Jews. It's their neighbors. Did you know that if you were a good Jew, that sometimes it was quicker for you to go from point A to point B to pass through Samaria, and you wouldn't do it out of principle? You would walk around? That's why when Jesus encounters the woman in the well in the Gospel of John, that she's like, what are you doing here? Did you get lost? She's a Samaritan. You don't come here. They hate each other. Hate each other. And so Jesus outlines the actions of this Samaritan, and the guy does what? everything right. He stops. He notices the man. There's compassion in his heart. He cares for his wounds. He loads him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn. He spends the night, gives the innkeeper money and says, listen, if it's more than this, I'll pay for it on the way back. They'd have been blown away. Blown away. The Samaritan, when it comes to displaying what it is to be a neighbor, sets the gold standard. And Jesus turns the phrase, right? What did the expert ask? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, to whom are you a neighbor? Right? It doesn't matter who your neighbor is. It matters who you're a neighbor to. Sets the gold standard. What does he do? Well, first he stopped. He noticed the man. The Bible tells us he has compassion. And because of that, He's able to meet the man's needs, but he stopped. Several years ago, I was going for a jog on our road. I've told this before, but 
it's, it, I think it reiterates the point. I was going for a jog. I don't run fast. It's more of a brisk walk. So I was going, there's hills, but I was going for a jog. And as I'm jogging by, I, oftentimes I pray because it helps me get off the fact that I'm dying. And as I'm jogging, I'm jogging past the, house, uh, the homes of our neighbors. And I'll be honest, I was feeling pretty pious and devout, feeling pretty good about myself, praying for these people, you know, praying for God to meet the needs of whatever they may be. And occasionally in my prayer time, I don't know if this happens to you, I don't hear an audible voice or anything, but what I do hear is like these, these really striking or prominent questions that I go, oh, these are so convicting, that must be God, must be the Holy Spirit. So I'm jogging, I'm praying, and the Lord said, do you know any of these people? Do you know their names? Do you know their stories? You're praying for me to intercede in their lives. How do you think I'm going to do that? Do you think I'm like just going to drop gold tablets in front of their house? How's that going to happen, my son? And my first thought was, I should stop jogging. <laughs> because this is going to get real inconvenient. He, he convicted me. And I knew in that moment that for me, for me and my family, that was a next step we had to take. God made it very clear in that moment that not knowing our neighbors was not an option. Why? Because I'm a pastor. I come to work with Christians every day. I miss working in the real world where I'm surrounded by folks that don't know him. But that's not an option for me most times. I've got to get creative with some of that. And so in that moment... God said, here is your next step. And friends, I believe that for each and every one of us, wherever God has placed us, wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we learn, wherever we play, whatever hobbies that we're in, that God has put us there strategically to reach who? Our neighbors. We would call them our ones. Our ones are simply those who don't know Jesus yet, that God has allowed us to have interaction with them in our lives. And for many of us, if we're honest, we just jog on by. I jogged on by for days, weeks, months, years, not even thinking about my neighbors. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was just doing other things. And yet in that moment, God convicted me of those that don't yet know him and that my heart should be like his. And in Western Pennsylvania, we've talked about this before, that's challenging for us. We love our neighbors. We love, or we love our families. We love our groups. But God calls us to have a larger perspective. The Samaritan gave us a pretty simple model just by stopping, by noticing, by displaying compassion. But it's one that I think that if we admit it's simple, it's not perhaps easy. But we start like he did by stopping and noticing our ones. These are the folks that don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. It might be a coworker, it might be a friend, it might be a family member, it might be somebody who sits next to you while your kids have soccer practice. I don't know. But I think if we would just pause just for a moment, each and every one of us, three or four people would immediately come to mind. Some perhaps not, but for most of us, three or four folks is not too hard to think about. In addition to stopping and noticing, the Samaritan took it a step further. He acted, right? He cleansed the man's wounds put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, spent the night, covered the excess. He went above and beyond. We'd all agree, right? Now, I don't know what was on his plan for the day, but I can guarantee you helping a Jew, an enemy, was not on his plan, 
nor was a detour to an inn, nor was an overnight stay. And if you're thinking, my gosh, this sounds like it's going to be a bit inconvenient, that's because it is. Friends, when we engage with our neighbors, it's going to be inconvenient. It just is. Wrap our arms around it. It's okay. Define reality. This is what it's going to be like. And occasionally, when we engage with those that don't know Jesus, our ones, it's going to be inconvenient. We're not going to want to stop. We're going to be busy. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we will jog on by. So how do we do that? Again, the biblical understanding of neighbor is far bigger, right? And how we show love to that neighbor is not something we can do on our own ability. It's not natural, which is why each and every morning I'd suggest that all of us get up and offer this simple prayer. Lord, I am your child. I am yours fully. I dedicate my life to you this day. Whatever you want to do, you do it and help me walk it through. As we submit our lives to him, whatever it may be. Because we don't know how we get to engage. We don't know what that'll look like. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity as I was, um, I graduated from seminary, I was looking for a job. Had an opportunity to interview uh, at, a, at an organization where I actually became a supervisor. I got the job. And when I went in for the interview, it was interesting uh, for two reasons. The first reason was I experienced my first group interview. Anybody ever had the joy of a group interview? That's where like somewhere between six and ten people you don't know ask you questions. And you're like, wow, I thought it'd be like one or two, six to ten. Let's, well, here we go. And we were, actually, I really enjoyed the interview. I thought that it went well. But during the interview, I noticed that a woman was wearing a pentagram necklace and pentagram earrings. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And I kind of filed that away. I got the job. A few weeks later, I'm starting at the office. Uh, I'm setting up my office. And that woman walked by. Mary is her name. We became really good friends. I called her Aunt Mary. And Mary walked on by, and we started to chat, and we're just talking about all kinds of things. She's still wearing the pentagrams, and I said, how long have you been a witch? And she said, how did you know? I said, well, you're, you're wearing the jewelry, you know? And she said, oh, I've been in of this coven and this order for this many number of years. She's going through the whole thing. She's starting to talk about things that I don't know about. And then finally she stopped and she said, this is something that's usually very private for me, but, but you noticed, are you one of us? And I said, no, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. And she said, oh, we probably won't get along. <laughs> and I said, yeah, we're going to get along just fine. Do you know why? She said, no, why? I said, I bet there is a large portion of things on which we agree. And I bet there are a few very specific areas where we do not agree. But wouldn't it be cool if we would talk about those things and you could tell me why you believe what you believe and I can share with you why I believe what I believe and we learn through that and we build a relationship. And she went, you know, I'd really like that. I said, well, let's, let's try it. And for the next four, five, six years, about once, twice a week, we would have conversations about Christianity and paganism. And I learned a lot about new moon festivals, <laughs> a lot of, learned a lot about solstices, learned a lot of stuff that I went, sorry, don't agree with you there, and here's why. But we had the conversation, 
And I said to her, Mary, I can't wait until you come to know Jesus. And she said, I can't wait until you come to our whatever. And I go, well, it's not going to happen. She said, probably not for me either. I said, but I'm praying for you. And she said, I'm praying for you, which I prayed against. And so we walked that through. And I love Aunt Mary. And my hope and prayer is that she comes to know Jesus. Because the opportunity presented itself. And frankly, that's why I miss working in the real world. Many of us have those things. We just have to notice, to ask the question, to say, I see this thing. Can we talk about that? Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your story. Tell me about your life. Jesus closed the parable by asking the man, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Jesus again reiterates the doing portion. It's not enough just to know, we got to do it, right? We actually have to do this. But again, if you haven't seen it by this point, if this is something that you believe or that I believe we can do alone, good luck. Good luck. Because we actually have two biblical examples of what happens if you go in alone on this. The first is either you'll go in alone, go in alone, and we will look exactly like our neighbors. We will adopt their values. We will adopt their customs. We will not be a holy, called apart, set apart people. We will look just like our neighbors. We will not be a light. That's what happens, option one. Option two, we will be holy and set apart and we'll fight like cats and dogs and we'll forget our neighbors in the process. Either we're gonna not be a light or we're gonna forget about them because we're fighting so much. That's what happens when we do this on our own. But when we do it empowered by the Holy Spirit, we look like who? The Good Samaritan. Now, I was taught that whenever you read a parable, you should ask, where is Jesus in this parable? So where is Jesus in the Good Samaritan? Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. He's the one who came, who noticed, who had compassion, who came into our lives, who picked us up, who cleaned us off, who cared for us who paid the debt, right? And he's coming back. Jesus is the good Samaritan. So that why? So that when we come to know him, we experience that love. And as we live empowered by the Holy Spirit, we get to extend that to our ones, to our neighbors who do not yet know him. They may be folks that we've lived across the street from for 30 years. There might be family members that we've prayed for for years might be a coworker in our office. It might be a friend at school. It might be someone that we meet in the grocery store. I don't know. But as we lay down our lives, as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we would pray for them, for the opportunities to share, to engage. And as we do so, we'll be living out what is our next step for today. I'll pray for and engage with one of my neighbors this week. Friends, that's not a light task. If you're like me, who's structured and introvert and likes privacy, you might as well ask me, like, really? If you put that before me, I'd rather have you remove a toenail. I just don't like it. I don't. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, we begin to experience his love in our life. We know everything he laid down to do that for us. And let's be honest. What everyone else laid down too, right? We didn't get here on our own. No golden tablets dropped for us either, did they? Someone was our one. We were someone's one before this. 
right? And so we get to return that favor for God's honor, for God's glory. I can't wait to see what God will do in the days and weeks to come as we identify these folks in our lives, as we care for them, and as we share the truth and love of Jesus. Because we know that many will come to know him and grow to be like him. Amen? Amen. The Good Samaritan does give us the perfect picture of Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, why not do so today? Jesus said, He came that we may have life, that we may have it to the full. That as we lay our lives down in service to Him, He shapes and transforms us into His own image, remaking us, restoring us, and renewing us. We say here at New Life, it's simple. Not always easy, but it's as simple as A, B, C. Admit, believe, confess. We admit that we're sinners in need of our Savior. We admit that we have sins. We admit that we need Jesus in our lives. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and as such, He has the right to claim His right as Savior over us because He came and lived a perfect life, died the death we should have died was raised again, sent the Holy Spirit. He saved us. But that also means that he gets to be our Lord, which means he's our owner, which means he gets to tell us what to do. And then we confess. We confess that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, and we also confess our sins to him. And we commit to living that out through the power of the Holy Spirit in the days and weeks to come. If that's you, I'm going to pray here in a moment. And as I pray, I would invite you to pray along with me to take what is perhaps the most important next step that you can take. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you and praise you for who you are. Lord, I thank you how you came into our lives, how you saved us, redeemed us, restored us, cared for us, paid the debt for us. Lord, we thank you for the love and the truth that you have poured on each and every one of us who call you Savior and Lord. Lord, right now I pray for any here today who do not yet know you. And Lord, that they would simply admit their need for you. They would admit their sins. They would admit their need for a Savior and Lord. That they would believe that you are the Son of God. And as such, you did save us. And you do have Lordship over us that we would confess, confess our sins, confess our need for you, and commit to living with you through the power of the Holy Spirit until we see you face to face. Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray this day that again, through the empowering of your Holy Spirit, that we would notice our ones, those three, four, five folks that you put in our path, that you break our hearts for them. Lord, break our hearts for the lost, those that don't know you. And Lord, that we would intercede for them, that we would engage with them to show them your truth and love. For no other reason, Father God, so that they can have the hope and joy that we have as well. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.